1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
3: Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. When I think about haunted houses, I usually think of decaying old buildings, homes bent with age and held together as much by legend as by wood, plaster, and old nails. But in the heart of Washington, D.C., the residence of the President of the United States is as full of legends as it is of politicians. History and lore mingle to paint colorful pictures of a house which stands so starkly white. It's actually
1: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
3: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
3: Have no fear. I mean, you can be afraid of ghosts if you like, but we're not going to talk about politics tonight. We're going to be talking about the residents of the United States presidents and many legends around it. I do need to make a note about the sound quality in this episode, or at least in the interview portion, Thanks to the generous support of patrons, I've been able to purchase some new equipment to get better sound quality. But somehow, when I set this episode up, my audio was incorrectly set to use the laptop microphone instead of the lovely expensive microphone I normally talk into. I believe Karen and Lindsay both sound fine, but despite my best efforts, my audio settings, they sound poor. So my apologies, but on the bright side, Karen and Lindsay do most of the talking in this episode. So let's head on down Pennsylvania Avenue, past the fences and security guard, and into the White House for some monster Talk. Uh So a couple of things to get out of the way bookkeeping wise, Your name's Lindsay Chervinsky. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yep. Super. All right. And Lindsay, uh, we don't really have a bio for you. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and, and your job?
1: Sure. So I am a White House historian for the White House Historical Association, which means that it's my job to share history about the White House and the people that have lived there and worked there and built the space and all of the things that sort of happened in and around the White House and what it has meant to American culture Prior to starting this job, I had a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, and um, then prior to that, I received my PhD in Early American History at the University of California, Davis, and my specialty is actually on political institutions, especially in the early republic. I um, have com- recently completed a book on the creation of the President's cabinet, in particular in George Washington's in- in- excuse me, in George Washington's administration. And so that will be out next year. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, so yeah, that's a little bit of my, my backstory.
3: Is, that, is your book uh, available for pre-order yet or anything?
1: Not yet, unfortunately. I'm dying to see what the uh, cover ends up looking like. Um, It will be out with um, Harvard University Press in probably March of 2020.
3: I know Karen's been through that before with the books.
0: Yeah, a a number of times. And uh, yeah, it's certainly very exciting when you see that cover for the first time. And with a few books, I've actually uh, even going through publishers had to design my own covers, which is an interesting experience, too
1: yeah, I can imagine. I, I think they'll probably take the lead, but I'm very mm-hmm. curious to see what they come up with. They've done really great things in the past, so I trust them, but I'm very anxious for it.
3: Well, I have one more sort of presidential question. I, 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 we'll probably have many, but so you mentioned cabinet, <laughs> but that 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 terminology came later, right? I, I'm trying to remember which president had it. Was it Roosevelt? Who, who introduced the whole kitchen cabinet or the, the cabinet as the name of the people who came in and
1: uh, yeah, so the cabinet the term cabinet actually came from Britain oh, really? and okay. um yeah, so cabinet initially uh, referred to a small room off of sort of the main chambers of the king's meeting space. And so he would take his sort of favorite ministers into the king's cabinet, which was like a small little closet off the main room. And it was their private meeting space. And so it became known as the cabinet council. And then it just became known as the cabinet. And so that language was actually brought over. And Washington held his first cabinet meeting on November 26, 1791, which was two and a half years. Into his presidency. And by 1793, people were referring to it as the cabinet. So um, mm-hmm. the language was brought over pretty quickly and um, um, given to Washington's cabinet pretty quickly. The interesting thing about that, I think, though, is. Um, Washington himself refused to use that word during his presidency, and so nowhere in his papers is the word cabinet. He either referred to them as the secretaries or the gentlemen or the gentlemen of my family, because he considered the secretaries to be his official family. I'm doing air quotes, official family. <laughs> and um, so he refused to use that word, but he knew that that's what other people were calling it because the minute he retired, he referred to it as John Adams' cabinet. So he was very astute about what was going on. My best guess is that he didn't want it to be ki- to be compared to the British cabinet. And so that's why he didn't nice. use that language, but he never wrote down why he didn't. So that's kind of speculation.
0: Yeah, interesting.
3: Yeah, it is. He, he seemed really big on not being compared to a king.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so Washington was so much more politically astute than people give him credit for, and he was very emotionally intelligent about the people around him and public opinion, and so he was very careful about when he was crafting his public persona, he was trying to find a mix between sort of the gravitas and the fanciness that was required to establish the united states on an international stage and be respectable among you know all of these international players and and garner their respect but also he understood that the american people wanted him to be a virtuous republican and that's little r republican so for example when he was thinking about his inauguration the first time he ordered a american homespun suit it was very good quality homespun, but it was American homespun as opposed to British wool or silk or anything like that. And then to you know give it a little bit of flash, he had diamond shoe buckles. So he um, he liked to balance things out that way.
0: Oh, this is so interesting. We could do an entire show on Washington,
1: I think. Easily. <laughs> so many. I could talk about him for hours.
0: <laughs> well, the the reason that, or how we came up uh, with this idea for this show. Uh, was that I came across an article in the Washington Post that was about the White House being haunted. And um, so we we got in contact with you and, and we're very pleased to to be able to have you on the show today. Uh, so with this background in history, how did you come to be interested in the ghosts of the White House or alleged ghosts of the White House?
1: Sure. So um, as part of – actually, I will say the the way I first got introduced to it is through my current – Um, office where my office is. So the White House Historical Association offices are in the Decatur House, which is on Lafayette Square, just right around the corner from the White House. And it's actually supposed to be one of the most haunted buildings in Washington, D.C. And it was told to me very early on when I first started, just so you know, sometimes people hear banging if you're here late at night or hear noises. So, you know, just a heads up. So that was really my first introduction. And then as I was digging through some of the back catalog of articles we have and some of the pictures we have in our – in our program and online, I started seeing you know all these stories about the ghost stories in the White House and some of the people who had reported it. And so, you know, once you start, you kind of got you can't stop, and you just got to keep re- reading until you figure out everything that's been seen and who has seen what and um, what maybe what stories repeat themselves and perhaps have a little bit more seriousness to them.
3: You know, one of the things that happens in a lot of these ghost investigations is looking back at the history of the property. Were there any legends around the land of uh, where the White House was built or around Washington, D.C. itself before it became the, the capital of the United States?
1: So I don't know any ghost stories about the land that the White House was built on. However, I do know that the man who owned the land, David Burns, he owned a lot of land in Washington, D.C., or what became Washington, D.C., including sort of part of Lafayette Square, which is now right across Pennsylvania Avenue. And I guess on one of the corners, there was a graveyard um, before a number of other things were built there. And it seems that there's a reoccurring theme of sort of weird stuff happening on that land. There was a graveyard, then British soldiers camped out there during the war of 1812 and, than Civil War soldiers camped there, so it seems to be there is there is definitely a recurring theme sort of in that area, but um, apparently David Burns wasn't really all that thrilled about giving over some of his land for the city, and he, in his lifetime, sort of resisted by continuing to plant crops up and down Pennsylvania Avenue, um, which he <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious, and, and, you know, like letting out his farm animals to graze, and so he got basically what was the original version of the cease and desist letter from Washington and the commissioners um, asking him, can you please stop planting crops in Pennsylvania Avenue? Um, and so, apparently one of the things that people have reported is that they see the ghost of David Burns in the White House, in particular in the ye- yellow oval room, which is on the second floor, and that he has come back and several people have seen him.
3: Well, by a strange coincidence, I'm currently borrowing a truck from my friend David Burns, and I oh, feel that's a little cool. bit haunted as well, so... <laughs>
0: I keep thinking of Talking Heads, David Burns. Oh, there's David, David Burns. Burns,
3: as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
3: It's just too common of a name. <laughs> if I don't overturn uh, yeah, the truck, maybe it'll
1: be burning down my house. Like <laughs> there you go. Or plant oh, like, crops not. in your yard or something. There you go. <laughs> uh,
0: so it seems like a, a lot of ghost stories are linked to deaths in, that take place in, in a place, in a house. Um, so how many people have died in the White House that you're aware of?
1: So... To my knowledge, only 11 people have died in the White House, which is actually kind of a shockingly small number, given the people that have lived there and worked there over 200 plus years. Um, Mm -hmm. So eight presidents died while they were in office, but only two, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor, died in the actual house. And um, five children died while their parents were in office, but only Willie Lincoln actually died in the White House. And then three wives, Letitia, Christian, Tyler, Caroline, Harrison, and Ellen Axon Wilson all died in the home. And then a couple of other residents, uh, a child of one of of two of the slaves, actually, that Jefferson brought to the White House, an infant child died in 1803, Um, the father of... Uh, Julia Dent Grant died, um, and then a couple of intruders in the 20th century who tried to either invade or attack the White House through automobiles were killed either by the Secret Service or in an accident. Wow.
0: Wow, I'm really impressed with your knowledge of all the names and dates.
1: Oh well, I, I will admit that I am. I do have some notes here to prompt my memory, but no worries. <laughs> um, <laughs> but was it really interesting? Actually, I think about the White House. Is you're right. Usually, ghost stories are affiliated with people who have died in the home, and that doesn't really seem to be the case with the White House. It seems like most of the ghost stories are either people who lived in the home at one point, or wanted to be in the home and couldn't be, or were forced to leave early or something like that. So it, it's more about people and sort of their role in this space as opposed to death.
0: still so difficult for me just as an Australian to to think of the White House as a home as well. I mean, I tend to think of it on a much um, you know, broader scope than, than just where the current president and and uh, his or her family are living. Um, so it's just really Um, I mean, there's so much business taking place there, so much more than just people living there. So it is just interesting to think of it in terms of a home.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't really, honestly, until the 20th century, until Theodore Roosevelt added the addition of the first West Wing, that it actually really became such a business-like place. It really was first a home and sort of a social space for the president to entertain You know, important visitors or people of state, but then also the American public. And so a lot of times people when they moved in really did struggle with the fact that it was supposed to be their home, but it was also a very public space, because for a long time, especially early on, the bottom floor was just kind of open to visitors and so there were just constantly people traipsing into the East Room and wanting to take souvenirs and, you know, cut little pieces <laughs> out of the carpet or the drapes or, oh well. <laughs> yeah, wait around to see if they could find the president, things like that. Yeah. Um, and the president had his office on, usually on the second floor and would meet with his secretaries and his, both his private secretaries and the department secretaries there. So, um, you know, it's really, the space, it tells so, us uh, so much about American history beyond sort of just the traditional politics that most people think about it talks Mm -hmm. about diplomacy and and you know social trends and customs it talks about race relations and um the economy and culture and all sorts of things in ways that um one space doesn't usually do so it's a really awesome avenue for studying history of all types
0: yeah i'm sure
3: yeah it's such a an important uh an iconic thing now i mean it there, there clearly was a time when it was just a small house. It's not as big as I thought it would be when I finally saw it. But uh, that's right. It, it is. It's huge in its, its sort of presence. Now, from a paranormal perspective, it is one of the few homes that's consistently been reported to speak, uh, which I find is kind of amazing. I mean, I, there's hardly a day that goes by I don't hear that the White House reported this, or the White House said that. It's practically a gossip, and that was a joke.
1: You know, it's interesting that it's become—it has become such a symbol of the government and such a symbol of the presidency, in a way that, it, as you pointed out, it really wasn't for a long time. Um, and and now you're right; it's absolutely synonymous with the presidency. It's impossible to see it and not think of it in that way. And you know, the image itself.
3: What's the most consistent uh, activity? The paranormal activity that's reported uh, on, on the
0: property.
1: So I think the most consistent is probably something having to do with Lincoln, um, which makes sense. I mean, he's such a popular president and his death happened in such a tragic and striking sort of way. Um, it also you know, do, doesn't really help, or maybe it does, depending on what your perspective is, that Um, Mrs. Lincoln, Mary Todd Lincoln, was very into spiritualism and so she held regular seances at the White House and then at their summer residence at the Soldiers Home, but many people have reported seeing Lincoln or even seeing his son, Willie. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln thought that Willie's ghost visited her every night. Um, Linda Bird Johnson-Robb, who was President Johnson's daughter, reportedly saw him in the 1960s and had a conversation with him, but Lincoln apparently came back, has come back time and time and time again. Actually, one of my very, very famous, favorite stories, and one of the most famous is um, Winston Churchill. He would repeatedly stay at the White House when he came to visit um, both Truman and, but first, FDR. He and FDR are very close. I should say Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, so when he would come to visit Roosevelt, he would stay, and initially he would stay in Lincoln's bedroom, which I should clarify for our listeners, Lincoln's bedroom was not actually a bedroom initially. It was his office and where he would have maps on the wall during the Civil War, and that became a bedroom later on. And it was referred to as Lincoln's bedroom. And Churchill used to stay there. And one time, apparently, he was taking a bath, and Lincoln's ghost walked into the bathroom. And um, after that, he refused to stay in that bedroom suite and insisted upon staying in a different bedroom on future visits. But um, apparently, First Lady Grace Coolidge and Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands also reportedly saw Lincoln. So he is probably the most frequently noted
0: I also heard to that story that Winston Churchill wasn't wearing anything and was smoking a pipe. Is that true? I don't yes, know I
1: think he was actually that, in but. the bathtub, but he frequently oh, okay. smoked. I think he actually smoked cigars. So he was probably, okay, okay. I mean, he frequently smoked. I think he was a, like a chronic cigar smoker. So I think he was probably smoking a cigar in the bathtub and, you know, mm-hmm. reading papers or whatever. And. Um he apparently was very displeased about it because he said that no one would really want a ghost walking in when they were in the bathtub. Yeah, it was not <laughs> his finest hour. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, I also read that he said something along the lines of, "Well, I guess this puts me at a disadvantage, or, or something like that," which sounds very Churchill to sounds me. Churchill. <laughs> yeah. So, with the uh, the phenomena that's reported, who is generally reporting it? Is it uh, stories? Are the stories coming from staff, or residents, or visitors?
1: Um, some of both. Most of the reports come from either people who are living in the home, so family members, or the presidents, or staff that were there. So, one of the most famous reportees. His name was Jeremiah Smith. He went by Jerry and he worked in the White House for about 35 years. He started under Grant as a footman and sort of worked his way up to what he referred to as the official duster. And he um, would greet reporters when they would come to the White House and he always had a good story for them and could tell a tall tale and became so famous in in print that they called him the Knight of the Feather Duster. And he He they they loved going to speak with him when they, you know, had a deadline and they couldn't come up with a story. And so he most of these stories, um, especially the Lincoln ones, are attributed back to Jerry Smith. He loved telling stories and whether or not they were true is hard to say. But um, one of his more famous ones was when he was working for President Grant. Grant was really struggling to keep Nellie and her friends. Nellie was Grant's daughter and her friends out of the attic. They kept trying to go up there and have a you know private place to play. And so um, Jerry Smith came up with a story that the noises she was hearing in the attic were actually the work of the devil. And he resided in the attic. And so those noises and the screeches that she was hearing were, were the devil. And it actually turns out that they found out later that the noises were from a very extensive rat problem um but it, it worked to keep nelly out of the attic so um yes he, is a, he was a very common reporter he told he told lots of tales
3: going back to the uh the lincoln seance in those do we have any records of like what sort of things went on during those seances or like what did they i know uh his wife was very much a spiritualist uh got the very famous Ghost Photo, I think it was Mumler, did that Mm -hmm. shot. Um, Yeah. But uh, I I was just wondering if we have... We know they happened, but do we know much about what happened during those experiences?
1: I don't know that we know too many details. I mean, I do think that they were, um, you know, reported on... Fairly widely, which sort of discredited her in the public's eyes or made her seem perhaps a little bit more unstable. But I guess in the Midwest, especially in the 1840s, spiritualism was a very important and sort of widespread trend. She had suffered a lot of loss in her family, and after Willie died, she just became sort of incapacitated with grief. And so she really turned to the seances as a way to try to deal with that. And so um, I think she brought in some. Perf- Professionals, and it was. Um, she, I think, she would hold them when they were out at uh, Soldiers' Home. She would hold them out on the front porch at night. Um, there were some reports of people g- that would go to visit, and there would be candlelight on the front porch. But those are kind of the only details I know about that. And I do know that Lincoln occasionally attended, but he wasn't as taken with it. That was not how he coped with his grief.
0: Uh, aren't there rumors too that the Reagans? held seances, or at least Nancy Reagan, I believe she was uh, interested in a lot of paranormal claims and would consult astrologers.
1: Yes, yes, I've I've heard that too. I don't know of any specific details, but I do think right. she was um, she was very intrigued by the paranormal and uh, was very interested in astrologists and that sort of trying to you know predict things and read out of sort of this realm in that way. Um, but I don't know any of the particular details about you know who she turned to or what those That's details sure. looked like.
3: In the course of all this, have there ever been any ghost investigations of the property? I know that probably been precluded by security by the time that became a popular activity, but I was just curious.
1: Certainly not in the 20th century. Um, I think the Secret Service would put a kibosh on that. But I do know that, you know, the White House, depending on who's in it, has certainly sort of embraced this idea. The last year that President Obama was in office, they held sort of a ghost tour around Halloween and they had um, first-person interpreters in the White House, and so some of the famous people that have been, you know, reported being seen, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, they had um, interpreters there, first-person interpreters sort of dressed up as those people that are very convincing cells. I've seen some of them at different historic sites in the different rooms where they've been reported, Um, and so that's sort of great fun because it's it's a fun way for the president to sort of embrace this history and this story.
0: Definitely, and it's strange—strange strange to think that there's a place where ghost adventures aren't uh, welcome at all.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's you know, it's a, it's a. The president has so many serious topics on his plate. It's nice to have one that's a little bit more fun in this way. Um, sure. There's actually some great videos of the different interpreters online. I think they're on ABC's website, and we have in the White House Historical Association's digital library. We have some photos as well.
0: Great. Great. And so we've talked a little bit about uh, Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill. Could you tell us a few more sample ghost stories? I, I believe that Harry S. Truman either had sightings or has been seen.
1: Yeah, I think he saw some, he definitely reported seeing some ghosts. Um, There are some great ones. So there are some famous people, like um, John Tyler reportedly uh, proposes to his second wife, Julia Gardner, over and over again in the Blue Room, um, which was where they held their wedding ceremony. William Henry Harrison was the first president to die in the White House. He apparently haunts the attic. Um, one of my favorites abigail adams for those um, listeners who don't know this the adamses were actually the first people to move into the white house on november 1st 1800 and it really wasn't quite finished yet and so the east room which is now a beautiful sort of reception space where there's if there's balls or dancing um, or concerts it's in that space it, it was sort of a shell of a room um, but she didn't want to hang out the laundry in the backyard because it was very public there was no gate. And so she would hang up the laundry in the East room to dry when they were there in the house. And so to this day, contemporary staff sometimes report smelling wet laundry and lavender. Wow, Which I think it's really amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Dolly Madison is probably one of the more um, social ghosts in Washington, D.C. She has apparently been seen overlooking the Rose Garden several times, but she's also been reportedly seen at the Octagon House, where she and James Madison lived after the White House was burned. And she's also been reportedly seen at the Cuts Madison House, where she lived after James Madison died, rocking in the the rocking chairs on the front porch. So she was very social in life and she's very social in death as well.
3: Now it's funny because when I think about ghost stories, I usually think about, uh, isolation late at night. And then, you know, in that kind of weird sort of twilight space, that's when you run into your ghost experience, but I'm having a hard time imagining people being alone in the white house. It just seems like, a <laughs> place. yeah
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness,
1: Philosophy,
2: UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot.
1: So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch?
2: Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
1: Yeah, well, there are definitely some of those stories too. So um, there are some some of the ghosts that are sort of unknown or you know unknown figures are definitely more reported at night. So um, various people have seen a ghost of a British soldier walking around the grounds holding a torch, which I don't know if they say that sort of as a dig on the White House or just you know I don't know I don't know what the purpose of that would be, but I think that's pretty funny. Um, one, uh, there have been a number of reports of a woman um, in a white gown that used to be seen in the old conservatory that no longer exists. So it was a beautiful maiden in a white dress at night. Um, President Arthur, so Chester Arthur, was disturbed late one night by an old-haired white man ghost. Um, and then there's one in particular that I think is, is pretty interesting. Um, it never actually received a name. It was called The Thing. And it was um, a ghost of about a 15-year-old boy that would, that really scared the domestic staff working in the Taft presidency. And in about 1911, people reported that when they were working on a paper or a desk or something that night, they felt like something was leaning over their shoulder to see what they were doing. And... um, so many of the staff were talking about this. Taft was getting so frustrated that he ordered his military aide, who was um, Major Archibald, but to tell his staff that the first the first person he heard talking about it was going to be fired, because he was so tired of the staff talking about the things. So sometimes it is definitely late at night and and scary. One of the the sadder tales I think that's been told is the ghost of Anna Surratt. So Anna Surratt's mother, Mary, was convicted of um, conspiring to assassinate Lincoln, and she went to the White House to beg Johnson for a pardon, and he refused to see her, and so she was the first woman that was executed by the United States government, and so people have reported that um, every July 7th, Anna returns and bangs on the gates of the doors and cries to see President Johnson or whatever president is in office. So that usually happens at night as well. And so um, that I think is one of the sadder stories.
3: Right. What always makes me sad about that is the, uh, I, I saw that, I guess, the, gosh, I was just a kid that they had made a TV movie about the, Dr. Mudd that had been in, involved in the history. He treated Booth after the assassination and therefore got sort of rounded up but whether he was really involved or not uh, history seems to be pushing towards he wasn't but he still served time And yeah. uh, but I've always heard that the phrase my name your, or your name will be mud was tied to that and I, <laughs> but I've never had an opportunity to look it up now I'm reminded once again that I need to
0: keep. Yeah, we should look into it yeah.
1: but I've never confirmed it and the place that I think I first heard it was from um, they're like the National Treasure movies. So I know that I can't take that as a source. Uh, if and you so, can't
3: trust uh, Cage, I'm not sure if you can trust.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'll have, to, I'll have to look that up too.
3: Editorial note. It turns out that the idiom, your name will be mud, actually shows up in print 20 years before the Lincoln assassination. And the claim that the idiom is related to Dr. Mudd is merely folk etymology. It actually just means mud in the sense of, your name will have the social standing of wet dirt, which is to say, very low standing indeed. And while I'm here, the movie I was referring to is the 1980 made-for-TV film, The Ordeal of Dr. Mudd, which starred Dennis Weaver as Dr. Mudd. People my age will remember Weaver as the cowboy Detective McCloud from the Sunday Night Mystery TV shows. Also, the film had Richard Dysart playing Secretary of War under Lincoln Edwin Stanton. And listeners probably know Dysart as Dr. Copper, the ill-fated medical man in John Carpenter's 1982 masterpiece, The Thing.
0: Well, I'd love to ask, Lindsay, have you had any personal experiences yourself?
1: I haven't. You know, I haven't. um, I've stayed at the Decatur House late at night, but I've um, I've been there with other people, and so I've heard that most of those stories tend to be when you're alone and um, while I've had the pleasure of being in the White House, it is usually accompanied by a tour when I'm giving a tour and, uh, you know, talking to a group. So I unfortunately have not experienced any of those things. I think that I would, I would really enjoy it if I did. I don't know that I would find, you know, if I saw the ghost of Thomas Jefferson playing the violin in the yellow oval room, which is something people have reported, I think I would be more intrigued than frightened by that.
3: So, is your job? Is it? You're. I assume. Sort of. A, this is a nonpartisan – Is it a government job? Is it? I mean, is it-
1: that's. Yeah, it's a great question. So we are nonpartisan and um, nonprofit as well. We're entirely privately funded. So our job is really to tell the story of the home and the people in it, um, less from a political point of view and more from a, a, the view of private life looked like in the home, but also, you know, the House's role on the public stage and in diplomacy and that kind of thing. And so, I mean, as I was trained as a political historian, so I certainly studied the politics of the early Republic. And, you know, it's my good fortune that the guys that I write about are sort of, you know, long dead. And so no one's going to get offended. Um, but, you know, we've, we've really found that if we stay out of politics and we can reach a much larger audience and share the history of the space and the importance of the space as the people's house and not really just as the president's house, um, we, we have a much greater ability to do that if we can sort of stay out of the political realm. So that's our goal as best as possible.
3: Ditto. So it's mostly just religion
1: then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that other super easy subject. <laughs> <laughs>
3: are, are there, so you just mentioned the other buildings, are, that's one of the questions I had. Are you aware of other ghost lore, of sort of like, you know, these big public spaces in D.C.?
1: Yeah, so there there are a lot. I mean, there aren't too many. Um, unfortunately, D.C. was very late to the historic preservation movement. So there aren't as many old homes in D.C. as there are in places like Philadelphia or Boston, which is really unfortunate. But in some of the older homes, like the Capitol or the Octagon House, which is just a few blocks from the White House, Or the Cutts Madison House, which is one of the other historic homes on Lafayette Square that's been preserved. Um, Or even the site of what is now the Hay Adams Hotel. There used to be two really lovely townhomes there owned by the Hay and Adams families. And um, Marion Hooper Adams, she went by Clover. Um, Unfortunately, um, after a long history of family a long family history of mental illness and suffering with a long history herself she took her own life and um, it really wasn't understood well at the time and so apparently her ghost does haunt the hay adams hotel so lots of stuff sort of in that neighborhood Um, so many famous people have lived there and so many interesting things have happened that it's not really surprising that those stories would crop up
0: are there any ghost tours in the dc area
1: There are. So there are some great ghost tours around, of course, around Halloween um, of DC. And then there's also a really wonderful one in Old Town, Alexandria, which is just across the river. And um, Old Town has uh, a lot of really amazing old buildings. They, the Alexandria itself is actually much older than D.C. It was a really important port in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was where George Washington would take send all of his crops and his goods to sell things to. It has the longest-running farmer's market in the history of the United States. So it has a lot of really old buildings, and it has a great ghost tour as well.
3: Uh, Aside from ghosts, are there any other sort of paranormal stories around the White House? I I don't know what that would be exactly. Maybe curses or anything? We're just kind of just sort of gathering lore here at this point.
1: Sure, yeah. No, I haven't really heard about any curses per se. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there were because there were so many people that wanted to be in it and weren't, you know, didn't get elected or were sort of booted out by elections. Um, But I, you know, I do know that when Chester Arthur Lost the, you know, when he left his office after his first term, um, his wife said, "Oh, we'll back in four years." And sure enough, they were. Um, but that's the closest thing that I've heard um, as a some sort of curse or anything or like think it's that. Like a prophecy, cool. right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: Oh, I'd heard of the uh, curse of is it Tippecanoe, the one about the uh, the presidential curse that there's a. An alleged pattern of death in the office of presidents who are elected in in uh, years that are divisible by twenty. Really.
3: Yeah, but, but yeah. I think that curse got broken, didn't it? I mean, I mean, it, it, oh. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the, 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 well, I think you hadn't the, heard that, but that's, that's I don't, I don't
3: mean like that. someone like cast a spelling broke because I mean just the numeric pattern broke. <laughs>
0: sure, yeah, yeah. I, I think it wasn't consistent in, in any way, but yeah, I think yeah. that there, you know, have been a number of presidents who've died in office or who've been assassinated or died of natural causes and, and then a few assassination attempts too. It's um,
1: really interesting. Well, I will say that by and large, with the exception really of um, Theodore Roosevelt, generally the presidents who come into office after death have a much harder time than the presidents who were elected in. That's not really a curse. It's just sort of a political reality. But um, Roosevelt sort of escaped that because he was such a huge personality. Um, But by and large, the ones that that come into office in those sorts of really – difficult conditions don't fare too well with the electorate going For
3: clarification, forward. you mean after the death of the previous president? Yes,
0: right.
1: yes. <laughs> they, yeah. Yeah. I, like, I,
0: I heard it that way at first as well.
3: <laughs> I was like, I bet they would. I bet they would have a hard time. They can't yeah, get yeah. any of their that's plans the implemented Is
0: tough.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terrible. But um, <laughs> So I... I have a question. This is more about you, and that is, uh, it, for you to be a historian writing uh, your own book. How do you find time to do research uh, for that kind of work? Is that all in your own time, or do you, or do they allow you in this job to pursue that sort of academic sideline, sideline stuff? as kind of core historian, but I mean.
1: Yeah, so it's some of both there. The, the association is very encouraging of me doing my own scholarship and um, continuing to engage in academic and sort of other communities. They want me to, you know, engage with both the public and academic um, communities and and groups um, for good reason because then you know I can learn about other great scholarship that's being done and and share my work with those people and build great relationships and partnerships and work on really cool projects with those people and get get my work out and get the association's name out there as well um, and. But, you know, part of it is also there are lots of things that come up in the day. So it does require a certain amount of, even though they definitely want me to do it, it requires some discipline. Um, I know that I personally am better in the morning, so I try and carve out a little bit of time to write in the morning. I generally, if I, ha- if, it's, if I have the choice, I try and do more meetings and that kind of thing in the afternoon to save my best and most productive hours for creating the really difficult content. Um, And then a certain amount of it is just being really realistic about the circumstances. It's a little bit harder to go to archives that are super far away. Not that that is really necessary always. Um, But, you know, I'm really, really fortunate that The work that I'm doing first on George Washington's cabinet and then with my second book is probably going to compare Adams and Jefferson's cabinets because I'm just really intrigued by looking at the cabinet as an amazing way to look at relationships and um, political leadership and how decisions were made, but it's also a really integral part of private and work life in the White House so kind of combines all of those things um, I'm really really grateful that there are incredible papers projects for all of those figures and so the editing teams that put together these volumes of the papers they do an incredible job and historians are so indebted to them because it makes my work a lot easier because a lot of it is online and a lot of it is in published volumes and so um, there is a certain amount of while I probably would pick these subjects anyway because it's where my heart lies um, it does make it a little bit easier to do that sort of work in my office and not have to leave all the time
0: cool. and now you have to do a book on ghosts in the White House as well
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm gonna have now I'm gonna have to now that I've dug up all this stuff I'm gonna have to write something about it
0: yeah if no one's done it I mean that's a great opportunity
1: yeah I don't think that there's a book there were a couple of um, there American University has a great master's program in public history. And so a couple of students put together sort of a proposed President's Neighborhood ghost tour. But um, And there are some great articles on our website about ghost sightings in the White House. But I don't think anyone has actually written anything sizable about it.
3: I've watched over the past few years that a lot of historic sites have been picking up on this dark tourism sort of trend. And mm-hmm. like uh, Gettysburg is really seems to be embracing it. And it's interesting because I, it seems like it's kind of a sacrifice because you're sort of embracing the supernatural spooky side of things in an effort to drum up more visitors. but. And also potentially the expense of losing the context of the more important historical real events they have.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you're right, it's a really hard line to walk because, you know, I think the the idea is if we can meet people sort of in the middle and, and what their interests are, then maybe we can sort of open a conversation. And once we've sort of talked about the initial thing that brings them in, take it a little bit farther and, you know, introduce them to other types of topics. So it's the same concept, you know, behind the Hamilton musical, it has gotten so many people interested in American history, and they recognize that it's art incredible art. I love it. I'm obsessed with it.
3: So my kids.
1: It's so infectious. But um, most people understand that it's art. And so there are some things that it gets wrong. So if we take that as a starting point of like, you and I both love this musical, that's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit more about what happened. That's a great opportunity um, to bring new new listeners and new readers and new lovers of history into the field. And so, you know, it is hard to, to walk that line and be really respectful of the serious things that have happened and the serious history. But also, you know, we, we don't want to do serious history and have no one read it because that would be sort of foolish. And so if we can find a way to get people interested and then introduce them to some of these more serious concepts, I think that's a win for everyone. It's a good gateway. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. You know, so I think we're trying to do that right now. We're trying to balance that whole, uh, there's a real historical site there. With a lot of amazing history, and then there's these spooky stories, and you know, I think it feels to me like any kind of place that has this sort of uh, emotional, cultural gravitas is going to over time accrue these kind of stories because it's just what we do as humans. But
0: absolutely, I
3: I find it so interesting.
1: One thing that I would sort of mention that I think would be really incredible, and I don't know how. To really get at this, other than maybe some oral histories, is there were a lot of enslaved workers that were um, hired out. So their owners hired them out to the construction crews to build the White House. And then there were a lot of enslaved people that worked in the White House for the first sixty or so years. And I think that there are probably some really great stories there that haven't been told. And so if anyone is looking for an interesting subject to research or to dig into, that would be a great way to um, dig into the history. The association, we're, we're starting a research initiative to try and bring out some of those stories in that community and really tell the full story of the White House in a way that it hasn't necessarily been done in the past um, and so that is that is sort of our goal going forward and I would encourage other people to dig into it as well
0: yeah I hope that happens it's very
1: important yes it is
3: it's very. I've watched online as people talked about the White House being built by slaves and you know a lot of people don't know that or are in denial of it and you know
1: mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that
3: our history's Complicated and a lot of it's really not good. So,
1: yeah, well, in Washington, you know, Washington, D.C., now. The way we think of it as this, you know, really international city, it was not that for a very long time, and it was initially very rural, and there were a lot of farms, and then even up through the Civil War, it was a relatively small city, and it was very Southern in its culture up until about the 1860s, and so it was absolutely um, a slave city. There were a lot of slaves there. There were um, slave auctions uh, during when the White House was actually being built. A lot of the slaves lived in huts in Lafayette Square. So that's just a really important piece for people to know. And it doesn't mean, you know, that we can't still, you know, view the White House as the symbol of the nation. It's just important to know that there are, you know, all these different facets and we can study them and know all of them and they can all be true and be a part of our history.
3: It's always more complicated. Uh, than we know or that's the thing i think yes uh,
1: history's complicated
3: you know it's like you love your mom but your mom's complicated are you you (laughs) it's so true (laughs) well not not your mom karen but it is it is a it's a it's a fascinating thing to me uh that that the nuances of history and you know documenting it and contextualizing it all of that stuff it's 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 uh it's, I think it's so important for us to understand because if you only know what's happening right now, there's that sort of fallacy. We live right now and everything's always been like this. No. You know, yes, my grandfather's yes. 102. He knew people who fought the Civil War. He knew people who owned slaves.
1: Time. One of the things that I think is amazing about, you know, the study of history is it shows us both how much has changed, um, especially, you know, the 20th century was such a tremendous period of technological innovation um, you know, medicinal innovations—so many different things—change so much, and yet some things have also stayed the same. Um, there are there are things that definitely sort of repeat themselves. Maybe history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly has parallels. And so, there yeah. are there are you know there are moments of anxiety, there are moments of tension, um, and that happens time and time again. And so, it's really good to see both the change and then the things that you know sort of stay the same as well.
3: I hate it when people do these weird twisted takes on history where they're trying to give you some uh, uh, non-historical view based on their extremely fringe interpretation. So uh, good historical research, primary sources, and sort of getting that other historian peer review that happens. I I think that's all really, really important uh, versus the sort of pop culture take. And So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm glad that your group is out there and sort of preserving these. Uh, probably difficult to capture bits of information, even if it's public life. I know there's a lot of efforts to sort of massage how people are remembered from an administration. So I'm sure when they're cleaning out from one administration to get ready for the next, there's a lot of concern around that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Well, we think it's really important to it. We do try and um, for the sake of, you know, staying out of the political context, we stick to a couple of administrations back and sort of wait for a little while to, (laughs) to, to look at things. Um, uh, But that's, you know, you're right. It is so important. It's so important to have critical analysis. And um, one of, you know, the best skills about learning history is learning how to evaluate your evidence and to know what you're looking at. And um, that's just a really important skill that analysis, I think, is something everyone can benefit from.
0: So, Lindsay, we've been talking mostly about ghosts today, but uh, the the question that we like to ask all of our guests is, what's your favorite monster?
1: So, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and um, despite this conversation, I actually don't really like scary things. So, I think my favorite monster is the cookie monster, because I love cookies, and I loved baked goods, but I'm a total wuss otherwise, and so I think that that is my favorite monster.
0: Well, we've never had the cookie monster before, so that's a good (laughs) answer.
1: I could give something unique.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lindsay, and and, uh, we just really appreciate you talking with us about this topic and being so lighthearted about it, too, because a lot of famous places, they just don't like to talk about the folklore and these kinds of things.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, no, this is fun. And I think, you know, it's a great way to share some White House history in a lighthearted way and um, let people know that there's great history out there to read about it. And um, thank you so much for having me.
3: And absolutely let us know when your book comes out or when it's available for pre-order. What Do you know what the title is going to be?
1: Sure. It's um, The President's Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution
3: sweet beautiful it is it is yeah. and I, I i did look up it was the kitchen cabinet was actually a derogatory term used against president andrew jackson to describe his cabinet so that's right
1: yeah. and it came up again um with kennedy oh
3: really okay uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah because kennedy had sort of his official cabinet and then he had a lot of sort of exterior advisors that he relied on and like so Marilyn it was used I was gonna say some other people, but that
3: too. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
3: You just heard an interview with Lindsay Travinsky about ghosts of the White House. We thank Lindsay and her employer, the White House Historical Association, for her informative discussion. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org Forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys.
1: Alexandria itself is actually much older than DC. It was a really important port in the 18th and 19th centuries. But
3: Alexandria also has a big zombie problem, I heard.
1: (laughs) I have not heard the zombie problem. That's amazing. You'll have to tell me about that.
2: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?